standing with me out of respect for God's holy word, turn to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. And I told you last week that I wanted to come back to this passage and to look at a few more things, and so I'm trying to make good on that promise this morning. 1 Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 9, here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters for then you would have to go out of the world. Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler not even to eat with such a one. What do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Those who are outside, God judges. Remove them from among yourselves. I have one other passage I want you to turn with me to, and that's Mark 2. Mark 2, verses 14 through 17. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. He got up and he followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. And when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's God to help us. Lord, we pray that you would teach us your statutes. You would open up these words before us this morning and that you would cause the entrance of them to give us light and wisdom and understanding. And we pray, Father, that you would bring conviction to us. Conviction of the truth that we would know what our duty is before you. And that standing upon the footing of divine grace, we would engage our culture. We would engage the lost. We would engage those who are in darkness, misery, and imprisonment for their own sins with the gospel of Christ. Lord, we need your help to do this. And so we ask for you now to send forth your Holy Spirit in rich abundance to clarify these words and apply them to our hearts. This we ask in His name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know what you were doing on Thursday night, but at least part of what I was doing was watching basketball. The finals are finally here. And I have to admit that I'm somewhat partial to Lakers and have been way before it was popular. But I was fascinated as I was watching the first part of the game to uh, see a part of the locker room speech that Stan Van Gundy gave to his team, the Orlando Magic. And as I listened to it, at least the snippets that were played on TV, I found it to be uh, an absolutely a brilliant piece of motivational speaking. Part of what he said was this. They don't have to give you any respect. 
the media, the fans, nothing. He said, the thing they can't take away from you is winning games. You see, what he was doing here was setting up a a sort of us-against-them kind of a situation. And us-against-them. There are these people out there who won't give you any respect. Whether that's other teams, or whether other other coaches, or whether the media, or whether the critics, or whether the people on the radio, or the fans. People just won't give you your due. And one reason why he would do that is to take all the pressure off them. As they stay, as they are in this locker room, the visiting team, ready to head off out on the court and play the Los Angeles Lakers, he's saying something to them that's very important to take all the pressure off them. You aren't even supposed to be here. That's how bad it is. You weren't even supposed to be here. But now that you're here, you might as well enjoy it. And then on the other hand, he appeals to their sense of pride. After all, they have defeated three very tough opponents who they were not supposed to defeat. And so now he appeals to their sense of pride that they have in each other and their team and their skills and their abilities and their accomplishments. And he is pumping them up to go out and to be fierce competitors as they play this game. To go grab some respect from themselves. As motivational speeches go, this was a very well-crafted motivational speech. And you say, well, what in the world does that have to do this morning with 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Well, it got me to thinking about something we need to do. Something I need to do. And that is get us motivated as we head into the summer months to be missionaries to our culture. And what caused me to think about that is what we have here in this text, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where the Apostle Paul spells out a strategy or a policy of engagement for the church. That we're not the kind of people who sit on the bleachers. We're not the kind of people who are just merely cultural spectators. We're not the kind of people who just get on the radio and criticize everything that's going on in the administration, everything that's going wrong in the world. But that we're the kind of people who engage our culture. That we become difference makers. That we become the kind of people who enter into the situations of people and into their lives and into their homes. And uh, and enter into relationships with them that we may share the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. That's what I believe Paul is speaking about here. At least he's giving us the seeds of that kind of a policy. And what I want to do this morning is motivate us to listen to the call. I want to motivate us to listen to the call. After all, I'm doing it right now at the outset of summer because summer is typically the time when churches power down for about three months. Cancel all the programs, turn off all the lights, and wait for everybody to come back from vacation at the end of August. But we're not called to do that. We're missionaries. If you are part of this church, it is a church plant, and it is here to be a missionary activity of the church to reach the lost for Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, we need encouragement and motivation from time to time. Paul gives us that here in the Word of God. And as we think about what Paul says here, we're going to branch out and look at a couple of illustrations from the life of Jesus to help us understand this. Know how to apply it. Before we do that, I want to, I want to come back into our text and uh, set the backdrop for what Paul says here in verse 10. And you know, first of all, that Paul is clarifying something. And he he makes that very clear in verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. 
We already addressed this briefly last week. I want to go into it again just a little bit today. That Paul actually wrote another letter, which was actually 1 Corinthians. And you say, how can that be? My Bible says this is 1 Corinthians. Well, the fact of the matter is, the Apostle Paul wrote at least one other letter before this letter, which is probably really 1 Corinthians, and it addressed probably a range of issues. And at least one of the things that it addressed was, how do you treat people who are under discipline, who are Christians? It's very clear that these Corinthians completely misunderstood what he said. Just to repeat a little bit of what we said last week, in case you aren't listening or you aren't here, Uh, What the Apostle said then is that people who have been uh, in the church, who are professing Christians, who are under discipline, need to be treated with love. We need to treat them as brothers. We need to treat them as those who we admonish and who we long to see come back to Jesus Christ. The problem is that when Paul said that, it either wasn't clear enough or they were too dull in their understanding. So here, uh, these uh, Corinthians took that to mean that they were to be disengaged from their culture. That they were not to spend time around immoral or sinful kinds of people. That they were to have sort of a cloister mentality. That they were to hide out behind the walls of the church. That they were to engage people. That they were to hang around sinful people of this world. Well, uh, Paul makes it very clear now as you look at verse 10 that he didn't mean that at all. And it's really fascinating how he does that. Uh, He says, I did not mean that at all. Kind of hard to misunderstand that, right? I did not mean at all for you to disengage and to separate yourself from people who don't claim to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. To people who are living in sinfulness. So here Paul begins to unfold his policy of engagement. He said, I didn't mean that you weren't to associate with immoral people. And then he expounds that. Five different kinds of people who are a part of the world. And and this is just really just um, an example of the kinds of people in the world. Five different kinds here. He says, first of all, they're of the world. That means they're not in Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, to be of the world is to be in a position of disobedience and rebellion against God. It's to be enslaved to Satan and the darkness and our sinful passions and selfishness. He says immoral. We already explained last week that that's not people who just break laws, but it's sexually immoral. Then he says covetous. And that uh, literally means people who are greedy. People who are greedy for money. If you don't think that sounds very bad, uh, you can just turn over to chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul says that covetous people are the kind of people who won't inherit the kingdom of God. So we know that it's a bad sin, even though it sounds a little bit sanitary. Then he says swindlers. And swindlers means uh, exactly what it sounds like. Thieves. People who steal things that don't belong to them. Finally, he says idolaters. That is, people who worship and serve false gods. Who find their hope and their dreams to be fulfilled in false gods. Not the real, living, and true God. Now, step back from that verse 10 and what Paul had just said. He said, I didn't tell you not to associate with those kinds of people. That's the point that he is making here. Christians, we don't withdraw from the world. Paul is saying here is just the opposite. 
that we are to engage these very kinds of people in order to win them to Jesus Christ. In other words, what Paul was saying, and here's his big clarification to the Corinthians, is go engage the world around you. Now, I know that that is a challenging command to most people, to most Christians. It's even more challenging of a command uh, to Christians who've grown up in a Christian cocoon all their life. Frankly, if I could just talk a little bit about Reformed people without trying to disrespect our tradition at all, uh, at times and at places, we've done a very good job of creating Christian cocoons where all we do is talk Christian language, Reformed language, Catechism language, spend all of our time within the walls of fortified Christian activities that are wholesome and good for us, and we don't have any idea what's going on in the world, and that's thought to be piety. And we don't like hanging around unbelievers. We feel very uncomfortable around them. We feel very awkward around them because we've always sort of heard or at least had it implied that if we get around them, uh, we're going to go apostatize. We're going to go live like them. We're going to be influenced by them. We're going to be shaped by them. We're going to be overcome by them. And so we're always nervous and worried when we get out around the people of the world. And if sometimes by chance the people of the world come into our church, and especially if they have tattoos or funky looking hair, they dress different than us, immediately the alarms begin to go off and people stand back and wonder how they're going to deal with this new strange person. Well, I believe that what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that it is our obligation to go around these kinds of people, to build relationships with them, And to associate with them. That's his point. To associate with them. Not just be aware of their existence. uh, Not observe them like uh, a science project. But to associate. Which means to have meaningful contact and relationship with them. Now, in a couple more chapters, I'm going to give this same sermon again. You go to chapter 9, you see the Apostle Paul said that he has become all things to all men, that he might win some men to Christ. So I said, I'll leave that sermon for uh, a few years from now when we get to 1 Corinthians 9. But what I'd like to do is now look at Jesus. Because after all, he is the Son of God. He is a perfect example. And he is the one who lived this to perfection. And the first passage that I want to look at, which uh, illustrates this policy of engagement, is the one that we already read here in Mark chapter 2. I thought I'd begin with the least scandalous and move to the most scandalous. But here we have the least, or rather, a less scandalous policy of engagement or illustration of engagement uh, marked out by Jesus' example in Mark chapter 2. And we're told here in verse 14... Uh, that he is passing by the tax booth. He's been teaching uh, next to uh, the Sea of Galilee. He is in Capernaum, think northern Israel, uh, a place where Jesus spent the majority of his time during his earthly ministry. At any rate, he's walking by and he sees Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in his tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And it says he got up and he followed him. Let's break that apart. I want to examine this narrative, first of all, in terms of the characters. And the first character is Levi. And Levi is a Jew. And Levi is a tax collector. Levi is somebody who is estranged. 
That's what a tax collector is. I'll come back to that in a moment. But he sitting at tax booth. And how this happened is that wealthy people would buy an entire district from the Roman government for a large sum of money. And then they would employ people to sit in those tax booths and collect tolls from people who came by with stuff. And sometimes, well, not just sometimes, but sounds like from the records of that day that these people were very shady. They were basically authorized to be criminals, to shake you down and to get all the cash they could from you. That's the kind of person that Jesus invites into his inner circle, by the way. When he called Levi to himself, he is not offering Levi the back seat or the back pew in the church. He's not offering him a janitorial position. Not that being a janitor is bad. I'm just saying, he's inviting him into the inner circle of his ministry team. He's inviting him to be one of his disciples, one of the twelve, one of the people who would be entrusted with written revelation to go out and to proclaim the gospel to the people throughout Palestine and later on would be prepared and sent out into the world to take uh, the Christian church and the Christian message and the Christian gospel to the Roman Empire. This is somebody who's being welcomed into a position of privilege next to Christ. And Jesus goes to that kind of person who is a social outcast, who is somebody who is hated by his society, who is considered a thief and greedy and covetous and a swindler. Nice guy. Jesus says, follow me. And Levi jumped off of his tax booth and he follows Jesus Christ. Now, this is what Levi does. Because he's so happy that Jesus would associate with somebody so lonely and so despised as him... That we're told, not here but in Luke chapter 5, that he threw a really big party. That's what he did. He was so happy that he threw a huge banquet. And uh, you get a sense of how big this was from verse 15. It says there were many of them. But if you go to Luke chapter 5, you said there was a great crowd. Guess what kind of people were at this big banquet? All the bad people that Levi associated with. All the rest of the social outcasts who live in Capernaum. All the people that he could scrape up from the sidewalks. All the people who would have been uh, those who, if you ever had a big gathering, would be the people who stood next against the wall. The kinds of people that people didn't want to interact with because they were contaminated. We know that's true because the next word that describes the other set of characters that are at this banquet, they're called sinners. Sinners doesn't necessarily mean people who broke God's law. It means people who didn't follow the religious laws of the Pharisees. Uh, They were the underground movement. They were the subculture. These were the kinds of people uh, that didn't like the establishment and the status quo. They were constantly challenging the religious authorities because they thought they were tyrannical and oppressive. And they didn't like their heavy-handed laws. And so rather than being a part of the system, they chose to live outside of it. And this subculture grew, and there were many people who were a part of it. And they associated with each other, and they knew each other. And so when Levi gets converted to Christ and comes to follow him, it sends electric shockwaves throughout this community. And these people take notice, and Levi says, How about coming over to my house to have a party with Jesus, the person who called me to himself and gave me salvation? Well, all these people were very excited, we can tell from the Word of God, because they showed up, and we're not only told that they were there, but they began to follow Him after that. So you have tax collectors, and you have sinners there. 
social outcasts, insignificant, irrelevant, on the fringes of society kind of people. Does that sound a little bit like what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 5? Covetous, swindlers, thieves, immoral people of the world? Well, those are the characters. Now you see the scandal of it all. The Pharisees came and they saw that Jesus was eating with tax collectors and they said to them, Hey, he's eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. It's almost like they shouted out. Like, can you, can, can you really believe your eyes? Jesus is sitting with these kinds of people. And he's not just simply sitting with them, he's eating with them. And in ancient Near Eastern culture, to eat with somebody is to have a relationship with somebody. He's not just eating with them, he's drinking with them, which means he's having wine. So he's eating, he's walking into, uh, he's trying to build a relationship with them, and he's having fun with them because he's drinking wine with them. And uh, these Pharisees are utterly scandalized by it. Why? Well, because these people uh, were considered outcasts. Tax collectors were hated so much that they were listed with murderers. Tax collectors were hated so much by the Jews. And by the way, Levi is a Jew. The people at this party are Jews. They're also hated by the rest of the Jews that they're disqualified from being a judge. They're disqualified from being a witness in court. They have all been excommunicated from the synagogue and they've all brought disgrace upon their entire family and their social network. That's why these rabbis, these Pharisees, are so upset with Jesus and they come to Him and they press Him with this question because it was a agreed upon standard of the rabbis that teachers did not interact with these kinds of people. It was forbidden. So Jesus lost his license to be a teacher in the eyes of these Pharisees because of the kinds of people he associated with. And by the way, before I move on through this, I want to just say this, that we better be very careful as a church and churches what kind of laws we come up with for our pastors. It's not unheard of that some churches forbid their pastors to drink alcohol or to play cards or to gamble. It's not unheard of that they have agreed upon standards of dress and and grooming and all kinds of things that the pastors are supposed to do so that they look pastoral. Whatever that's supposed to mean. It's assumed that these pastors won't watch television except for the news and maybe some sports. That they'll be unaware of what's going on in the movies. That they'll have no clue of what contemporary music looks or sounds like. And all of this is designed to make sure that the pastor sort of looks like Mr. Rogers. In order, in order that people will be able to have this idea of their pastor as a great, holy person. And yet, as pious as that sounds, it's really satanic. It is really satanic, it is really Pharisee-like, because you are keeping them away from the very people that they are called to preach the gospel to. So in the name of piety, we hold pastors to standards 
that caused them to fail to do what Jesus called them to do, which prohibits them from being actually Christ-like, which is to engage. Jesus' response to this is marvelous. Some of the most memorable words that Jesus has ever spoken, verse 17. Hearing this, Jesus said, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't call the righteous, but sinners. You see, Jesus turns to these Pharisees, and He turns the criticism right back at them, and He says, You know what? You're healthy. I didn't set up my clinic to fix you because you don't need me. And that's a jab at the Pharisees. He doesn't believe that they're righteous or, or good people. It's, it's really a smackdown of the Pharisees. But what he's saying to them is that I'm going to ignore you because there are real people who have real problems, who are stuck in their sins, who are trapped in a way of life that's, that's harmful to them and corrupting and dangerous. And I'm coming for them. He says, doctors don't set up clinics to heal people who aren't sick. And pastors don't spend all their time around people who already know the catechism. Yes, they have to spend time with church people, but they also have to, and this is the rest of the church, needs to learn how to engage their neighbor and the people around them who really need the gospel. Now, I know this is a challenging uh, message. It's a revolutionary point of view, but it's the one that stamped across the gospels. And it's the one that the Apostle Paul emulated and followed himself. And I said we'd move from uh, the less shocking to the positively shocking. And the scandalous, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Now I want you to turn there and you see this for yourself because this is absolutely mind-boggling. As you read here what Jesus does in this particular instance and this kind of way of illustrating the principle of engagement. As you're turning there, I just want you to take note of, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, verse 34, where Jesus airs out a criticism which he's heard about himself. And the criticism from the church people is this, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man, a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, Jesus had a bad rap. He got a bad reputation among people who uh, went to synagogue because they said, Hey, look, you're supposed to be the Son of Man. You're supposed to be this great prophet and teacher. And yet, what are you doing? You're hanging around all the unsavory, social outcasts, bad kind of people. And it's interesting that uh, put uh, right up against that now is a story that illustrates that. Verse 36. Now, I don't know if you have a heading in your Bible of the scandalous woman or whatever. That's basically what this, uh, this is about. Jesus has been invited over to a Pharisee's house for dinner. And this Pharisee is an arrogant, self-righteous punk. You can see that from verse 44 through 46. Jesus criticizes him. He said, you see this woman? I entered into her house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. You gave me no kiss. That is no greeting. And she's been kissing my feet ceaselessly since I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. All of the things that you are required to do, the minimal standards for hospitality in Palestine, he says you have ignored every single one of them. Which is an indication that this Pharisee didn't have Jesus over to his house to get to know him. He had him over to his house to scrutinize him. To find fault with him. To pick at him. 
But the fascinating thing is, is that he sits in this kind of environment with this smug, self-righteous Pharisee that this woman walks through the door. And I want you to see how this pops out in the original verse 37. It says, there was a woman who was a sinner. This is the character of the episode. And the thing that stands out about her in the original is sinner. Verse 39, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and of what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Most commentators who look at this passage, I would say a a significant majority who come to this passage and read all of the details and think through all of the uh, issues of this passage, basically agree on this, that this woman is not your ordinary sinner. She's a prostitute. And the scandalous thing is now is that this prostitute comes to Jesus while he's lying on his left side, his feet are hanging out from the table, and she falls over the top of him and she begins to weep over his feet because she realizes that she's a sinner. That she has ruined her life pursuing her immorality. And yet she's heard Jesus. Which tells us that she has been close enough to Jesus on other occasions to have heard the preaching of the word. She knows who he is. She's heard his message. And it has penetrated her heart. So this is not her conversion experience. This is her gratitude experience. She comes into the house of this Pharisee who is smug and self-righteous and she plants herself at his feet and begins to pour out over his feet a very expensive bottle of perfume. And then does the very scandalous and socially awkward thing of letting her hair down, which was completely forbidden in public in Palestine, the ancient Near East at this time. She extends her hair down, she lets her barrette or whatever, I don't know what women use to hold their hair, whatever it is, you know what I'm talking about, scrunchies, whatever. And uh, she lets her hair down. And she begins to take that hair and to wipe his feet. Crying and crying and crying and crying and crying. Because Jesus loved her and preached the gospel to her. Called her out of a life of selfishness, sin, brokenness. Now if you thought that Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and sinners was edgy, imagine how the headlines read that Jesus had his feet wiped by a prostitute. Now, what I'm not saying, just so you're clear about this, is I'm not saying that everybody should run out now, find a prostitute, and hang out with them. (laughs) If, If providentially they're in your path, then it's up to you to know how to engage them responsibly. But what I am saying is this, is that obviously we have to be close enough to them to be able to engage them with the gospel as Jesus was, or it would be impossible for them to hear the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. As I think through all of this, and I I think about it in relationship to Paul's command to engage and to associate with these people of the Corinthian society who everybody would have agreed on who had a Christian leaning or a Judaistic leaning would have all agreed were sinful people. 
What I've done here is I've gone through some illustrations of the life of Jesus where we have uh, situations where he illustrates by his behavior this kind of engagement. And what I want to do now as we wind our way to the end of this message is I want to give us some applications which will guide us now as we think about this duty we had to take up the call to go engage our culture and to be missionaries within it for this summer and then beyond. And the first thing that I think I can see here is I put these stories together with Paul's admonition here in verse 10 is that the very first principle that we need to learn uh, from this illustration and the principle is that if we are to have uh, impact with the gospel, we have to have contact with people. Now that's very obvious and should probably go without saying, but but I, I think about that principle in light of some of what I've heard in my past. Of a lot of gospel preaching within church sanctuaries, of pastors waxing eloquent about how they're not ashamed of the gospel, and yet when I think about them in some churches, I wonder whether they've ever been around unbelievers. And I'm not trying to be critical, it's just that we can so easily uh, become insulated and isolated in our patterns and in our, in our way of practicing church that somehow, some way, we never end up around the kind of people that Jesus came to lay down His life. And what I'm not saying is that these people are dishonest. I'm just saying that it's time to change the strategies and the tactics. It's, it's, it's time to pull out the Levi strategy, which is to invite everybody over to your house and have a big barbecue and don't fill it up with a bunch of Christians, but invite a bunch of unbelievers that you know. That's part of the policy of engagement. Sure, have your family there. Sure, have some other mature Christians who are able to be there to help build the relationship. But invite people over to your house who don't go to church. That is an intentional strategy of outreach. That is an intentional, strategic application uh, of being a missionary. That you get close enough to people and show fellowship and hospitality to them that you are able to build a relationship out of which flows naturally witness for Christ. The first principle that flows out of Jesus' example And Paul's principle or policy of engagement is make contact. Intentionally make contact with unbelievers. Build relationships with them in order that you may have the privilege one day as they begin to ask questions to open up your Bible and to say, you know what? I want to talk to you about your sin. And I want to talk to you about Jesus who saves you from sin. Now that's a lot harder to do than to stand behind a pulpit and broadcast a message wide and far. It's very difficult to, to sit in front of somebody and look at them in the eyes and to begin to break down to them their sinfulness. The best way to do that is to have a, have a relationship with them. And ask God to open doors. The first principle is contact to make impact. The second is very, very important principle, and that is we engage as a physician, not as a participant. 
very important. We engage unbelievers as a physician and not as a participant. Yeah, Jesus did go around tax collectors and sinners and apparently even this prostitute. He, had, he, he ate with them and he drank with them. Or there would be no basis to the charge that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But you see, Jesus wasn't searching for an identity. He wasn't doing it because he was confused about what he was. He didn't do it because he was looking for a social group that would accept him and make him feel better about himself because he felt isolated because he really didn't get along with the religious people. He entered into that environment, into those kinds of relationships intentionally, not to participate with them in their social identity or in their club or in their sins, but he did it as a physician who would come close to these people, close enough that he may get to know them and earn their respect and their friendship in order that he would be able to communicate with them. This is a very important principle. We don't engage unbelief and then participate in sin in order to say, Hey, look, I'm just being a missionary. We go around unbelief and sinners as physicians who are seeking to apply a spiritual remedy and to be a blessing. The third principle that emerges from these illustrations from the life of Christ Uh, is that the motive is compassion. The motive is compassion. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this uh, incident of Levi's banquet. All of them include Jesus' response that, uh, that as a physician, he didn't come to heal those who weren't sick, but those who uh, who were needy. Yet, Jesus said something else that only Matthew records. Right after saying that he didn't come as a physician to heal the sick, he said to the Pharisees, I want you to go and figure out what this means. And he quoted Hosea 6.6, where God says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. You see, Jesus puts the spotlight on the motive for why he was doing what he was doing. He says what he was trying to accomplish was to minister compassion to those who were broken and disfigured and harmed and enslaved and blinded and hurt by their own sin. You see, the motivation for being able to enter into these kinds of relationships is because you love people. We already heard the admonition this morning in the reading of the law that Jesus said we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, and Peter broke that down in terms of uh, ministering hospitality to others. But you see, what motivates that? And Jesus makes it clear that the motivation that he had was compassion. Which means to minister mercy to those who are in desperate situations. How do you get compassion? Well, you pray for compassion. But you get compassion by realizing what sin is and what its consequences are. And what will happen to you if you don't repent? And what will happen to them if they don't repent? Yeah, the Bible is very clear that God, yes, is indeed a merciful and compassionate and loving God. And He extends the gospel call to as many who will hear it. And He proclaims it loudly from the rooftops and the streets and everywhere that Jesus saves. And everybody who would like rest and who is weary 
can come unto Jesus Christ for salvation. But the other side of the message is if you don't, if you don't come, if you don't embrace Christ unto salvation, there's certain wrath. There's judgment. There's eternal condemnation. How do you get compassion? Well, you figure this out. You just listen to the message of the gospel. On the one hand, that if we would repent and believe, that God would be gracious. On the other, if we don't, certain judgment awaits. You see, the consequences of sin are eternal condemnation, and we need to meditate upon that. We need to realize. It's not just that they have a different way of life. It's not just that they do things that you wouldn't do is that the result is devastating. Flowing out of what we understand sin to be and what its consequences are, we're to cultivate compassion. And we show that real compassion by engagement. It's not enough for us to just simply say, oh, I have compassion for sinners. And then you never lift a finger to talk to a single one. I don't understand that. Spend all the time in the world making sure you sharpen down the gospel message till you get it just right. But you never tell anybody about it. I don't see how that's compassion. Compassion motivates us to go. Compassion motivates us to engage. Fourthly, and finally, what emerges from this is that Conversion is the aim. We engage with a purpose. We engage with a purpose. Something uh, recorded in Luke 5, which again is the same story, just Luke tells it from some different angles, doesn't mean there's a contradiction. Uh, Jesus there says that he's calling them to repentance. In the original, that's metanoia. And that means a complete change of life based upon a complete change of mind. In other words, the purpose of the engagement, again, was not for a social identity, not just to hang around people who might be accepting of him. But it was to come into their world for the purpose of converting them. This has to be the principle which guides us when we go to engage in believers and build relationships with them and be friends with them. Ultimately, what we ought to be aiming at and thinking about is not just that we love them and have compassion for them, but we have a sincere, heartfelt desire to see them wander Christ. We must aim at their life change, which is a gracious action of God towards them, but that has to be our aim, that we pray for that, we work towards that, we talk about that, we take opportunities to testify concerning that. We have to sincerely engage them with the desire to see them break from their life of sin. You say, that's an awful lot to take out of 1 Corinthians 5.10 when Paul said, I did not at all mean don't associate with immoral people. Well, it might be. But then understanding this verse and its broader context, like I said, what Paul will explain in 1 Corinthians 9 and the example of Jesus, I think this is exactly what is embedded within this text is a policy of engagement. So this morning, I hope, as you've heard the gospel, as you've heard 
about Jesus' example, as you've heard about Levi and the grateful prostitute, that you hear the call is for you. That you hear the call is for you this morning. Not just me, but for all of us who claim to be Christians. It's our job to be missionaries. It's our job to engage. It's our job to take this gospel with a sincere, heartfelt desire and aim to see real life change and to see people one to Jesus Christ, freed from the enslavement to sinful passions and to self-service. And that they may come to Christ with brokenness and humility and receive salvation and eternal life in Him. Let's pray.